If we could somehow harness this lightning, channel it into the flux capacitor, it just might work. Are you ready to work that? Hurt that? Ride it like a rodeo? Can you sit back, grab strap, hold it and don't let go? Will you hold tight, get right, stay in the need to know? Dig your heels in, no spin, keep it deep on the down low. It's a bull run, how fun, grab a partner and do si -do. Yeah, it's a fang-fang, bing-bang, the mark of breath is starting to grow. We got a debt deal, for real, how long was that going to go? Big job gains, insane, companies hiring like they don't know. A recession, a correction, profit compression, or just a slowdown. Downtown, eventually they'll start to grow. In the meantime, focus your screen time on higher high six weeks in a row. Tell Aunt Sally there's a rally. Tell Uncle Jim to get back in. Heck, even tell your second cousin Joe. This train's bound for glory. Let me tell you a story. It's the Express in Studio. Welcome back and welcome aboard and turn the hats around and upside down because it's rally time. U.S. markets closed out the holiday shortened week last week with a sizzler. The Dow soared 700 points for its biggest point gain of the year. The S&P 500 popped close to 1.5% and the Nasdaq added about 1%, closing higher for the sixth week in a row. There's something about Fridays lately, am I right? The S&P 500 is having its best performance on Fridays any year since 1953, gaining on average just over 0.4% on the final trading day of the week. It might not mean anything, but I think it means that investors and traders have enough conviction to hold stocks through the weekend. That wasn't the case earlier this year. The resolution of the debt ceiling debacle may have emboldened investors as well as a really strong May jobs report that shattered expectations. U.S. employers added 339,000 jobs last month, but wage gains did continue to cool and the unemployment rate ticked up to 3.7%. The Fed likely liked those indicators given that wage inflation has been on its hit list and a rising unemployment rate shows that more people are actively seeking work. The Fed would like to see that number at around 4.5%, so the progress there will be key ahead of the FOMC's next meeting next week. Looking at the weekly performance of the S&P 500 sectors, all 11 of them ended up in the green, led by a 3% jump in consumer discretionary stocks and then real estate stocks. We haven't seen that in a while, and it leads us straight into our big three for the week. Number one, there's been a lot of hand-wringing about the fact that the rally in the U.S. stock market, which began back in October of last year, has only been driven by a handful of stocks. It's that over-concentration theme that bears and reluctant bulls like to worry about. I get it. It's a little unnerving, but it's not new, and it doesn't mean that the current rally is unsustainable. We've seen this back in 2019 with the FANG stocks, in 1999 with the dot-com darlings, in the 1980s with the telecom giants, automobile stocks in the 1950s, railroad stocks at the turn of the 20th century. You get the point. But that's sometimes what we get in our market-weighted indexes. The stocks with the biggest market caps, which are usually the most widely held, drive the bus. As an index investor, you want that leadership. Consider the alternative. So far in 2023, the S&P 500 is up 11.5%. That's pretty good given where we were at this time last year. It looks even better when you measure it against the equal-weighted version of the S&P 500, which measures all 500-plus stocks separately. Yes, there are more than 500 stocks in the index. Alphabet and a couple of others have more than one listing. But that equal-weighted version of the S&P 500 is only up 1.7% this year. Which would you rather own? We need those mega caps to throw their weight around, and they have. Those FANG stocks, by the way, are only 7% away from their all-time high as a group after falling 50% last year. You can call that a comeback. 
And if you want to look beyond the S&P 500 for more signs of strength, the all-country world index just hit a 52-week high. Number two, given this rally, you got to wonder why the so-called smart money is so pessimistic right now. The debt ceiling crisis is over. The Fed looks like it's going to pause in next week's meeting as inflation continues to cool. Corporate profits were better than expected. So why have hedge funds widened their net short positions in the S&P 500 to their widest levels ever, according to data from the CFTC? That means they're actively placing options bets that the market will fall in the near future. Do they think it's come too far too fast? Do they think the Fed's going to keep tightening? Are they worried about China? Are they worried about Russia? What is it? Well, maybe they're worried about the fact that the U.S. government is about to flood the Treasury market with over $1 trillion worth of newly issued government bonds that the U.S. Treasury has been waiting to auction until the debt ceiling was raised. Remember, one of the extraordinary measures that Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen had to take was to delay the auctioning of U.S. Treasuries so the government could shore up funds to pay its bills until the debt ceiling was raised. And now, as Bloomberg News points out, the Treasury is about to kick off a borrowing spree that could top a trillion dollars by the end of the third quarter, starting with several Treasury bill auctions on Monday that will total over $170 billion. Banks and other investors are going to have to pony up for those bills to satisfy their own liquidity requirements at a time where they aren't feeling very flush. As Bloomberg reports, J.P. Morgan and Citigroup both estimate that this flood of Treasuries will compound the effect of quantitative tightening on stocks and bonds, knocking almost 5% off their combined performance this year. It's a trend that, together with the Fed tightening, will push the measure of liquidity down to an annual rate of 6% in contrast to an annual growth rate for most of the last decade. Remember, stocks need liquidity. It's their oxygen. This is worth watching. And number three, what about the Federal Reserve? The selling of all those treasuries coincides with the Fed's quantitative tightening plan. It is reducing its balance sheet. It may have paused while the banking crisis was unfolding, but it plans to keep selling treasuries and not buying them. Its other lever, the one we actually feel as both consumers and investors, is what the Fed does with interest rates. The Fed meets next on interest rates June 13th and 14th, and right now, the CME's FedWatch tool shows a 75% probability that the central bank will keep rates right where they are. But then the FedWatch tool indicates that the Fed's going to hike rates another quarter of a percent at the July 26th meeting, followed by another pause on September 20th, and then a quarter point cut on November 1st. Add it up, and the Fed funds rate is going to be in this range of 5 to 5.25% for most of this year. That's going to keep borrowing costs elevated. Not great for stocks, yet why do they keep rallying? What will be the next headwind for stocks, and will it be strong enough to stop them? That's the question we all need to be asking. Let's get set up for the week ahead, and we're going to be heading deep into the metaverse and into virtual reality. Apple's expected to unveil a mixed reality headset at its Worldwide Developers Conference this week and will showcase its new microchips and a new Mac Air, among other products. That stock is at an all-time high, by the way. Meta already tried to front-run Apple by releasing its MetaQuest 3 VR headset using meta-reality technology. It's going to cost around $499 versus Apple's new device, which is expected to retail for $3,000, although it's aimed at software developers. On Wednesday, we're going to get the latest updates on the U.S. trade deficit from the U.S. Department of Commerce. The trade gap is projected to have widened in April to an estimated $75 billion from $64.2 billion in March. Then on Wednesday, the Federal Reserve will release data on consumer credit, giving insight on the state of U.S. consumer borrowing in April. In March, consumer borrowing rose $26.5 billion, the fastest pace in four months, with credit card balances rising 17.3%. Consumer borrowing is actually projected to decrease in April to around $20 billion. OPEC Plus members met over the weekend and made no changes to their planned oil production cuts for this year, although Coalition Chair Saudi Arabia announced further voluntary declines. 
OPEC Plus also announced in a statement that it's going to limit combined oil production to 40.4 million barrels per day between January and December of 2024. Previously, OPEC Plus agreed to a 2 million barrels per day decline back in October. Crude oil prices, by the way, have fallen nearly 40% this year. They say software will eat the world, and artificial intelligence and chat GPT are the latest predators that have begun to dominate the ecosystems of nearly every industry they touch. Financial services and investing are no exception, and we learned last week that JPMorgan Chase is developing a chat GPT-like software service that leans on a disruptive form of AI to select investments for customers. The nation's biggest bank applied for a trademark called Index GPT in May, which appears to be like an AI chat-powered interface to create direct indexing portfolios for clients. This is just one of the ways that financial services and advice will be disrupted by this technology, but there are many, many more and a lot more on the way. To get a better understanding of how technologies like AI are seeping into the world of money, we are bringing our old pal Lex Sokolin back aboard the Express. Lex is the chief economist at Consensus, author of the FinTech Blueprint newsletter, and one of our favorite futurists. Welcome back to the Express, Lex. Good to have you here. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. There are so many ways that AI, ChatGPT, and the blockchain are already impacting financial services. Like you write about it all the time. So let's get into some of the more obvious ways that are happening now. And then we're going to talk about ways that aren't obvious or that are coming, but are important to the industry. What are ways that are happening right now that we may not even see as consumers? I think um, artificial intelligence and blockchain are very different types of platform shifts that are happening within finance and also more broadly throughout the economy. You know, finance is something like 15 to 20% of the economy. And of course, it's very important. It's an accelerator of growth, but it's not the only place where these technologies are being applied. And that economic growth then goes and is redirected back through financial services in the form of investments, in the form of lending, in the form of payments, and so on. I think if you look at artificial intelligence, very broadly speaking, it's used a lot in the distribution of financial services. So being an interface that you talk to, that you engage with, that delivers to you various financial features, I think that's the opportunity there. There's already a lot of artificial intelligence or machine learning that is embedded into some of the manufacturing of financial products. So lending, insurance, those sectors have seen a lot of statistics and machine learning being applied within their core products for many years. Now, if you switch to blockchain, it's quite a different technology. And that one sits very squarely on the manufacturing side. It's there to be the infrastructure for things like payments, for lending, for banking, for trading, but an infrastructure that's much more modern and more programmable. I think today what you largely see are the symptoms. You see things like crypto assets showing up in people's portfolios and brokerages trying to distribute those crypto assets. But what is more fundamental is the economic and financial infrastructure that we now see called Web3, or more broadly, the smart contracts that are sitting on blockchain rails. Right. So a lot of people get confused between the crypto tokens, the assets, the Bitcoins and the other coins, and what's actually being laid, the foundations, sort of the new plumbing 
for the future of financial services. And that's a very big difference. So after, let's take the crypto assets, the tokens for a minute, after sort of that spectacular crash and the hype came out of those last year, there are a few that still remain that are very important to this ecosystem. Which ones of the crypto tokens that are out there are actually useful for financial services? Forget about the investing implications, just what are the ones that are actually in use and that have a future? They all have a future. I guess the question is, is that a good future or a bad future? And I would make the point also that tokens aren't the thing that that is the useful thing. That's not the productive thing. Tokens are a way to capture value, create mechanism design and incentivize particular behavior. You know, and I think a caricature of this would be being confused about Apple's stock and the iPhone and not knowing the difference between trading Apple stock and using the iPhone for email or for calling somebody. And people generally tend to know the difference between the financial abstraction that represents a project and then the functionality or the, the service or the product that the project generates. So if you look at the crypto ecosystem today, there's still a lot of coins and tokens that are really there as, let's say, just brand assets digital assets that people can hold and transfer, but they don't do very much. And pretty much all of them, except for Bitcoin, have no reason, in my view, to exist. Bitcoin has a great reason to exist, but it's limited in its ability to take over the narrative and do more than become um, a store of value. You know, So it can be valuable, but it's quite limited in the ways that it can do so. Whereas for me, and of course I'm biased, the Ethereum ecosystem has been very compelling and adjacent things to Ethereum, whether it's Polygon or Arbitrum or Optimism, or even the Move ecosystem, chains like Aptos or the Solana chains, Cosmos ecosystem. I think there's been really interesting technological breakthroughs. So the promises that Web3 has made about being scalability have come to pass. You can now have lots of transactions per second. The promises about becoming much more ESG friendly and not using graphics cards for mining have come to pass because Ethereum switched to proof of stake and you can now deposit and withdraw ETH and receive an interest from doing so. And the promises now around privacy and all sorts of other smart contract functionality are being built out too. So I'm really optimistic about the state of Ethereum-based infrastructure and the applications that can run on it. On the flip side, the tokens of those applications, even of the best applications, so things like MakerDAO and Curve Finance and Aave, things that are, that are meaningfully useful as financial services for lending, for underwriting, for exchanging with Uniswap, even though the software works really well and does what it's supposed to do, the tokens have not done a good job of holding value. So I think for people who are looking at the space and want just to do a light touch, staking Ethereum is probably the best risk-adjusted opportunity. It's certainly not the only one, but you know, if the advice for traditional markets is buy a Vanguard diversified fund, I think for crypto, my advice now would be ETH plus staking is the answer. Peer into the future, Lex. You're so good at this. And talk about the ways that I actually will feel these new technologies affecting my life as either an investor a customer of a banking institution, or somebody dealing with my financial life. Let's talk about AI and chat GPT. Today, there's a lot of things going on behind the scenes, but if I'm going to actually experience that in the future, what does it look like for me? I think 
all of these technologies will feel as pedestrian to us as, for example, logging into your phone with your face. 20 years ago, if you were to say you're going to have a supercomputer in your hand that has three cameras that in real time scan your face across millions of data points, and they use machine learning to map your face into a particular hash that is then associated with your identity, and then the image of your face unlocks all your bank accounts and all your media accounts and everything, all the ways that people communicate with you. And this is a thing you'll carry around with you every single day of your life. First thing you see when you wake up, first thing you see when you go to sleep. It's unlikely people would think that's normal or okay. That sounds like Star Trek that we, we might have grown up with, but that is so common, right? It's true. I, you know, I was traveling recently for an event and I was at a hotel room and got up in the morning and I, I had to hold back the desire to ask one of the smart robots that I have all over the house for the weather and the time. Uh, and I felt like a crazy person, you know, just like wanting to talk to an empty room. But these behaviors get woven into us by the devices and the things that are available to us. So the question is, what's going to be available to us? And I think it's easy to be a skeptic, and it's not super useful either, because saying no doesn't add all that much value to people's ability to innovate and make new things. Being a skeptic maybe filters out some things that are completely false, but end of the day, you're not really adding to the process of the creation of new things very much. So what I try to do is to say, okay, if yes, from a rigorous perspective, what could it look like? And so on the blockchain-based side, I think the answer is that we have a completely global, every single country, completely global economic infrastructure that incorporates, of course, every asset class, but also is the place where people build businesses, where they create digital objects and where they provide labor and their services. And when they create digital objects, those things, if they need scarcity, can be anchored on chain and then exchanged. So the NFTs today that are just pictures, for example, could be self-executing software. So instead of you going to a social media site or a Zapier or some fitness tracker or a health site or whatever it is, and that site having your data on your behalf, i.e. custodial, having it on your behalf, in the same way that you go to a bank and the bank has money on your behalf in a custodial manner, meaning you don't have the money that is at the bank, you just have a receipt. In the same way that current cryptocurrency and digital asset technologies allow you to have non-custodial assets, meaning you hold them in your own digital pocket, I think that's going to be true for lots of software too. So you have a global layer. The global layer allows you to have ownership of various objects, pieces of code, various robots, your pieces of labor, right? Everything that you might generate in the digital environment and might want to exchange and have market venues over. That is also a public good. That's not something that should be owned by a government or a company that should be owned by humanity as a whole because it's a natural monopoly. And so the second thing is, okay, well, how does artificial intelligence integrate into that? And I think what we're seeing with generative AI now, number one is it augments labor. So your ability to instantiate products, whether they're software products or whether they are artistic endeavors, or whether there are some sort of other conceptual abstraction, so knowledge work, is much, much faster. So I think people who are going to be very productive will be deeply plugged into all of these software agents that will work on their behalf, and they will do it in the voice of the person. So they're hyper-personalized, and they extend 
what the person wants to do. And I think if you anchor these things on chain, they start to have provenance, meaning that the creator is encoded into the product. And so you can counteract the sort of infinity of stuff that AI would generate by anchoring the important stuff with provenance and digital objects on chain. So all of this sounds super science fiction-y and just maybe unreasonable, but if you compare the iPhone experience or the smart speaker experience to 20 years ago, you would also say all of this stuff is ridiculous. It'll never happen. So let's talk about how this may all impact financial advice. You also wrote about Zoe Financial. This is sort of digital and human advice combined, I think, using AI. Talk about what's happening there and what you think the future of financial advice is as these technologies get more woven into it. Financial advice is really tricky. As a former robo-advisor founder, I've learned that it's really tricky. And there are lots of failure modes. You know, So a financial advisor does at least three things. Number one is they are the portfolio manager. So they make asset allocations and pie charts and they make investment decisions. Number two is they are a salesperson. So they go out and they get clients. So if you think about where does financial advice sit for a firm like Goldman Sachs or BlackRock, the answer is they're the distributor of the underlying product. That's where a lot of these conflicts come from, where a salesperson has to hit revenue, but the products they're selling might be not right and so on. And then the third thing the advisor has to do is to be the therapist to their client. And the wealthier the client, the more that therapist role, the emotional work becomes more important. So you might need a financial advisor if you're going through a divorce or if you've come to a fortune or if you've lost your fortune or you need to make a large purchase, right? And those are catalysts where you might go out seeking advice. The easy cases have already been automated through basic software. So the portfolio management part, yes, there are people who are very good at portfolio management and they should work at hedge funds. The model portfolios of the large asset managers do a good enough job. And I think robo-advice and digital wealth platforms have created lots of rules that can figure out that investment selection in a pretty hyper-personalized way. Number two is the sales piece. And the sales piece, you know, figuring out how to sell in a digital environment versus a physical environment that's a problem that's already been kind of solved that has little to do with AI other than how does machine learning play a role in advertising. If you open up a new platform, a new channel, for example, if ChatGPT becomes the default place where people interact with data rather than Google search bar, right? If like if Google loses 100% of its market share and then ChatGPT and talking to an AI is the only way you search, and this is an extreme, then the only place you would want to distribute financial advice digitally is within the workflow, the plugin system of these large language models. Now, it's it's not going to be 100%. It's going to be some sort of smaller share, and that's the game around distribution of sales you have to play. The final piece is the empathy and the emotional labor. And robots are fantastic at this. It's really quite something that the first pushback that people have about automation is, well, you're not going to be able to bring the human connection and relationship. You're only bringing a picture of a pie chart. And that's a fair criticism until now because AI is particularly well-suited to be patient, to speak in the language of the client, to explain things over and over again, to give rationales, and to wrap the mathematics of 
investment management in terms and language that a client can understand. And so I think kind of the largest challenge is for financial planners and for advisors that kind of lean into that communication. I think that's where large language models are a threat. On the investment management side, I think it'll be interesting to see what happens. And I think you can create better investment products, but it's not as obvious to me that that's where LLMs are important. Absolutely. It's coming. And it's a question of how we're all going to interact with it and how advisors are going to interact with it as well. Okay. What's on the horizon, Lex, that you think is going to be revolutionary, that's not getting enough attention or that you're working on that you think is going to be a big deal down the road? I'm definitely working in this future space because that's where I'm learning the most, where my curiosity takes me. And I think if you're on the frontier, you can work ahead of things. For me, I think people still don't understand what Web3 is for, which is to run decentralized software. And I think people still don't understand that there are now enhancements to that infrastructure to run really big software. So if you think about videos on the internet first starting to play on real player being very pixelated and then expanding to full streaming on Netflix or if you think about video games starting with Mario and you know the 8-bit graphics now expanding to Star Wars Unreal Engine full render and virtual reality same things happening with finance where the financial services offered by web3 infrastructure starting off very compressed and small with little processing and now growing and expanding exponentially. And I think whoever can figure out how to use that infrastructure, but then benefit from the open source innovation in the space is going to grow very quickly. The other thing, and I've, I've alluded to this, is figuring out how the ownership capabilities, the digital ownership capabilities of blockchains overlap with the infinite media production capabilities of large language models and how we can create some sort of bound against the extreme cases of all of us being addicted to infinite content. Because if you thought Instagram and TikTok were bad, it's going to get a lot weirder. And so I'm paying attention to what's the dialectic, what's the balance between these two platform shifts. Folks, if you're interested in following along with Lex's thoughts, please subscribe to the FinTech Blueprint, his terrific newsletter. All right, let's go out on this. We always ask our guests for their favorite finance, econ, or investing term. You're a futurist, you're a humanist, but you're also someone who really knows the investment industry well. I am very curious for Lex Sokolin's favorite term. What is it? I'm going to go with equilibrium, in part because of the work that I've done recently in the Web3 space. For the first time, I think, ever, we've been able to have the ability to apply the scientific method to macroeconomies. In the past, macroeconomies are run by the nation, and there's only a few that can control anything. And the only experiments you have are accidents of history. And now we have the ability to design ecosystems that are powered by tokens that represent financial value in those ecosystems. So people who are interested in systems and economics can design experiments and play them out. And within six months or two years, you're going to see whether some particular way of thinking about economic systems was right or wrong. And I think that's really quite amazing. And these systems reach equilibriums. They reach points that are just so informative and you can learn so much from them. And then you can also see how that equilibrium breaks. So I guess that's why, um, that's why I'll stick with it. We love that term. And I love the way you explain it. Lex Soklin, 
the chief economist at Consensus, the author of the FinTech Blueprint newsletter, and one of our good friends here at Investopedia. Thanks so much for spending time with us and for peering into the future. We appreciate you. My pleasure. It's terminology time, time for us to get smart with the investing term we need to know this week. And Matt Matusiak, who goes by Ivid Matt on Instagram, reached out to us suggesting mark to market this week. We love that term because it's at the heart of all those bank failures we saw last month. According to Matt and my favorite website, mark to market is a method of measuring the fair value of accounts that can fluctuate over time, such as assets and liabilities. Mark to market aims to provide a realistic appraisal of an institution's or a company's current financial situation based on current market conditions. In trading and investing, certain securities such as futures and mutual funds and bonds are also marked to market to show the current value of those investments. Assets that experience a price decline from their original costs would be revalued at the new market price, leading to a marked to market loss. And that's exactly what happened to Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank, and First Republic Bank to an extent. These banks held government securities against customer deposits. Most of those securities were government bonds, the most widely held and trusted assets on the planet. But when the value of those bonds fell like they did last year and customers came looking for their money, those banks experienced mark-to-mark losses. The value of those bonds wasn't what they were when the banks bought them, and those banks did not have sufficient collateral to give their customers their money back. Every bank and financial institution and every regulator and a lot of investors are looking deeply into the balance sheets of all banks to make sure they have adequate capital to guarantee their customers' deposits by marking those assets to market. Great suggestion, Matt. DM us your address and we're going to send you a pair of our world-famous socks. We're going to let Arthur C. Clarke take us out this week. The legendary futurist and novelist was thinking deep thoughts about AI and the future way back in the 1960s, and this is what he had to say about it in a 1964 conversation with the BBC. But even if the future does belong to the robots, our bodies and our brains still have immense untapped potentialities. For example, to cope with the information explosion, we may develop a machine for recording information directly onto the brain. As today, we could record a symphony on tape. So we may one day be able to become instant experts, uh, learning Chinese overnight, for example. Or we may be able to recall completely memories of past events so that we seem to relive them. Sounds terrifying and interesting, but I'm all in for the experiment. Special thanks to Lex Sokolin for climbing backboard the Express. He's way out there on the curve of our digital future, and I always appreciate his insights. We'll link to his newsletter in the show notes and all the reports we cited on today's show. Find those wherever you ride the Express and on investopedia.com slash the Express podcast. And we'll talk again a little further on down the line.